Last week we talked about the different ways that men and women speak. Jill did most of it simply because most of the pathologies that are involved in communication between men and women in our society today, and you need to be careful how I say that, in our society today are more predominant from women than they are from men. If you go to a marriage seminar or anything like that, especially a church seminar, men will be informed that they need to be able to speak lovingly to their wives, but typically the opposite doesn't get talked very much about, which is to say women need to speak respectfully to their husbands. Hence, Jill delivered the one last time because it was mostly aimed at correcting that perception. And what we finally came down with is love and respect are two sides of a communication coin. And the way we said it is, for men, if you are not behaving and speaking lovingly towards your wife, the fact that you are an unloving man is a problem between you and God. You've got a vertical problem, not a horizontal problem. Now, the fact that you have a vertical problem is going to show up horizontally in your marriage. Because if you are an unloving man and you treat your wife in an unloving manner, you will certainly reap the benefits in your marriage, but your primary problem is you're being disobedient because the word is unconditional. It says you're to love your wife. Similarly, if a woman habitually treats her husband without respect, she also has a vertical problem, and her problem is she is a disrespectful woman, and she is in violation of what God's instructions are. Again, she'll reap consequences horizontally because if she treats her husband with a lack of respect it will show up in her marriage but the primary problem is vertical she is not behaving the way God instructs her to behave so as I say these are two sides of the same coin we, we spend a lot of time talking about that this week's lesson is aimed at men whereas last week's lesson was primarily aimed at women uh, now the guys get their turn and we're going to do this in the context of Proverbs 31. For those of you who have been around a while, we did this last fall, and it was very well received. So we're going to do it again. And, of course, Proverbs 31 is one of these alphabetical Proverbs. Each verse starts with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it goes in alphabetical order. So in that sense, it's like Psalm 119. And it's clearly designed pedagogically, which is to say it's designed for women to memorize, and it was used as, I'm sure, instruction for young girls in their houses. That use of it is still valid. We are not negating that use. But what I want to do is I want to take and look at it from the perspective of what does the man in this woman's life look like that enables her to behave in the way that Proverbs 31 describes. So let's start off by reading it, and I'm reading the New King James Version, just because it's the one I'm used to. There are some things in it that will switch to other versions because it's useful. So Proverbs 31.10. Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. 
She is like the merchant ship. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. She considers a field and buys it. From her profit, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hand holds the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands, and let her own works praise her in the gates. One translation difference that I'll mark right now, because we'll talk about it a little bit later. In verse 25, strength and honor are her clothing. She laughs at the future is another translation. The connotation being there that she is cheerful and joyful and not worried about the future. Either laughter or rejoicing, different translations. All right, so first off, one of the things that a Proverb 31 woman is, is rare. And that's an important thing. There are lots and lots of perfectly successful marriages that do not have Proverbs 31 women and men in them. This gal is a rare commodity and her husband knows it. That's an important understanding. But not all women are going to measure up to this gal. And what I'm going to assert and what I'm going to develop for the next hour is that this woman has a rare husband that allows her to do the things that she does in this proverb. Now let's talk about men for a minute. Proverbs 31 is aimed at women. How many other Proverbs are there? 30. At whom are they aimed? Men. Notice the disparity there, folks. The civilization of men is a more difficult process than the civilization of women. And men need a whole lot more correction than women need. And one of the problems with our particular society is we've given up on men. And we are beginning to reap the results of that. You know, all of this take your daughter to work day and you know, all of the stuff that happens in our public schools to build up the esteem of women has in fact resulted in the denigration of men and boys and we aren't raising our boys. We're seeing that more and more in our society. God knows the relative difficulty of dealing with men and women and he devotes his ink accordingly. And if you read the Bible, most of it is aimed at men because we need it. God takes civilizing men seriously because when men run amok, it's very destructive. When women run amok, it's destructive too, but it's typically not quite so spectacular. And don't get me wrong. I mean, women can run amok and they can be very damaging, but you know, they typically don't wipe out small countries when they do. All I'm saying is that God made men different than women and it's harder to tame them, and that's why men get most of the ink in the Bible. Now, if you read Genesis 1, God goes through and he creates this and he says it is good. He creates that and he says it is good. He makes this and he says it is good. What's the first time that he says something is not good? 
He said, it is not good that man be alone. That is the first not good in the Bible. And that is absolutely true. Men need women. We are two halves of a whole, and each of us provides something that the other needs. It's very interesting. If you read the story of Abraham, and we've talked about this in Midrash, it's Abraham, 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 no Sarah. Abraham, Abraham, Sarah. Abraham, 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 Sarah. All about Abraham, right? And, you know, Sarah's in there. But if you'll notice that when Sarah dies, Abraham drops out of the picture. God sort of cleans up the rest of his life in about two paragraphs, and he's gone once Sarah is dead. So it is the unit of the two that is important. And Abraham gets most of the ink, but you really need to understand that Sarah is part of the Abraham-Sarah unit. And when she's dead, that chapter of the Bible is essentially over. And Abraham lives for quite a while afterwards. Sires more children and starts a whole other family and so forth. But as far as the Bible's concerned, when Sarah dies, it's over. And we move on to the next generation. Now, there are three things we're going to look at about this Proverbs 31 man. We're going to look at him as a husband. We're going to look at him as a father. And we're going to look at him as an elder. And if you read Proverbs 31, you see that he is each one of those things. It specifically mentions her husband. And it's mentioned that he is an elder. And it talks about their children. So he's a father. And what we want to do is look at the characteristics as a husband, a father, and an elder that sets up the home in which this rare woman can shine. So, let's look first as a husband. The first thing to understand is they are married. Now, one of the pathologies that's floating around in our society today is, well, it's just a piece of paper. It doesn't matter as long as people really love each other and yada, yada, yada. Nonsense. These folks are married. He has made a lifelong commitment to her, and she knows that. They are faithful one to the other. It is a marriage, and that is critical because one of the things we talked about last time are the number of 30, 40, and 50-year-old boys that are running around this society. They are not men. They're boys. And what they do is they use women. And they suffer in many ways as much, but not as obviously as the women do. A woman needs the stability of a commitment, which is to say a marriage. Because otherwise, she can't do much of the stuff that is being talked about here in Proverbs 31. She just can't because she doesn't have the stability or she isn't sure of the stability. There's always this uneasy edge, if you will. So the first thing to understand is they are married. Now, one of the things to understand about marriage is our society misunderstands the purpose of marriage. Our society, by and large, thinks that marriage's function is to make you happy. Wrong. That is not the function of marriage. The function of marriage is to complete one another and to rear children. Now, if it's done well, you will, in fact, be happy. But if you go into the marriage expecting that the purpose of the marriage is to make you happy, you're sort of spring-loaded in the divorced position because I will guarantee you, as you get to know each other, there are going to be times when one or both of you is not happy. And if that's the thing that you're primarily looking for in marriage, 
your chances of succeeding in that marriage are pretty slim. Again, I'm not against happiness. I think happiness is wonderful. I enjoy being happy. And a properly executed marriage brings great happiness. But that's not the function of it. So if you're chasing happiness through marriage, you're on a fool's errand. If you are trying to build a godly marriage and raise godly children, you will find happiness. But that's not what you're searching for. So when our society has taken the fruits of a successful marriage and they have held them up before children and said, wow, what you want from marriage is happiness, completion, all that nonsense. That's not what you want. I mean, it is something you want, don't get me wrong, but that's not the foundation. The foundation is commitment, responsibility, love, and respect. That's the foundation. And if you get the foundation right, the happiness will follow. But if what you're searching for is the happiness, you'll never get there. Proverbs 27:15. A continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. Whoever restrains her restrains the wind and grasps oil with his right hand. Now, is there anything in there that gives a man who is married to such a woman an excuse for not meeting his responsibilities? No. Now, I've been married for quite a while. And there are occasions when there's a lot of dripping going on. Not with Kay. She's an extraordinarily sunshiny person. But, you know, there's cases when that happens. Is that an excuse for me to say, well, I'm not happy, I'm bailing? No, certainly not. And in that stability, the wife finds strength. And everybody has a bad day, to include husbands. Now, the second thing about this Proverbs 31 man is he trusts his wife. Now, what's that mean? Think about that a minute. Trust implies risk. When there's an ambiguous situation, he trusts her goodwill. I'm not quite thinking of it that way. And you're correct. That's a good answer. I am more thinking in terms of he gives her the checkbook. He gives her the keys to the car. He gives her authority to make major economic decisions for the family. She considers a field and buys it. She plants a vineyard. She's making money. She's going out there and operating in the marketplace. And he is trusting her to do that. She homeschools the children. And he is trusting her to do all of those things. So when it says the heart of her husband safely trusts her, he is taking not an inconsiderable degree of risk on this babe. And, oh, by the way, it says that that trust is justified. The heart of the husband safely trusts her. This is not a woman who is going to go and take the money to you know, plant the vineyard and go off to Blackhawk with it. She's not. Now, when you trust someone with responsibility, there is the possibility that they are going to get results that you're not pleased with. How do you handle that as a man? How do you handle that? You've given her the checkbook. This is how much money you've got to run the household down, and there it is. Do it. And if you come up the 15th of the month, assuming you get paid on a monthly basis, and you're out of money, how do you handle that? It's an important question. Now, one of the things that I will suggest to you is pretty much everybody here has had subordinates in the business world. Subordinates have also not met your expectations in one way or the other. I mean, that's nature of life, right? Most of us treat our subordinates better than we treat our wives. If you have a valuable employee that has overrun his budget, I will guarantee you that you will not jump up and down, scream, berate, and belittle that guy because he won't be working for you very long if you do. So what on earth makes you think you can treat your wife any less respectfully? And I'm suggesting to you, you can't. And what you need to do is sit down together and figure out what the problem is. 
Are your expectations too high as to the cost of groceries? In other words, do groceries cost three times as much as you think they do? In which case, you've got to make adjustments. Is she doing something that is outside of the purview of what you thought you had agreed to when you gave her that responsibility? You need to talk about it. I mean, one of the things that happens in a marriage is you get used to each other, and you sort of assume that you know what she's going to do in general terms, and she'll surprise you. Okay? <laughs> it's going to happen. And the question is, how do you handle it? And the way you handle it is as if she is valuable to you, which means that you don't jump up and down and belittle her and browbeat her and all of the things that you see on sitcoms, you know, where one of the spouses goes ballistic. You don't do that. Not if you want her to continue with responsibility, because if you slap her around figuratively every time she doesn't meet your expectations, she's going to quit trying. That's the way it is. So I would suggest that as sort of a minimum standard, and I'm not suggesting that you use a standard, think about how you'd handle a subordinate at work who didn't meet your expectations. Because you're used to dealing with that, and you've got to work with these folks every day, and you've got to figure out a way to get them to meet expectations and still be happy members of the workforce. Again, this, that's sort of the minimum denominator. I'm not suggesting that you treat your wife as a subordinate. I'm simply saying that that should be the minimum standard. One of the things about this guy as a husband is he's not a creep. Because what does it say about how his wife works? Willingly. She is enthusiastic about the things that she does for the family. Now, I will guarantee you if this guy is some kind of a creep that belittles her or oppresses her or anything else, she is not going to be working willingly. So again, the fact that she is working willingly says something about him. He's generous. How do we know that? She opens her hands to the needy. Very, very common phenomenon, especially in Christian families. Woman goes to church, the guy doesn't. And she would love to tithe, but she's afraid to. Is that a generous husband? No. And what this says is she gives generously to the poor, and she is not sneaking money out of the household accounts that he doesn't know about. He himself is generous. And she is reflecting that generosity because she feels free to give money away. That's very important, and it says something about him. One of the things that men need to learn, and it's a hard one, is you don't work to get rich. I'll say that again. You don't work to get rich. The Bible says so. Why do you work? Support your family. Stay busy. I will give you another reason. I will suggest one of the main reasons to work is to give, so you have something to give. And if you are working to have something to give, you are working with the right attitude. Let's go to 1 Timothy 6. Pick it up at verse 6. Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. For those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You get the same thing out of the Torah, and you get the same thing out of Proverbs. It's a consistent message throughout Scripture. The reason that you work is to provide for your family and to have something left over to give. And if you've got that much, you have enough. So when the Proverbs 31 woman is giving generously to the poor, she is reflecting a Proverbs 31 man who understands the purpose of work and who is generous. Fights over money and family, I, you know, they get pretty nasty. 
And clearly we don't have fights over money in this family because both the husband and the wife understand what's important and it's important to be generous. And so she and he are both doing the same thing. His wife can laugh at the future. And again, what does that say about him? He's stable and reliable. She knows that he's going to get up every morning and go to work and he's going to come home every night and he's going to bring home enough to feed the family with and he's going to do it again tomorrow. And he's going to keep doing it again until one or both of them dies. So she isn't worried about the future because she knows she can depend upon him. In fact, she looks at the future and laughs. She sees the future as something joyous, not something to be feared. And again, that speaks of his stability. He praises her. Encouragement is not easy. Ask my wife. That's one of the things I'm not very good at. If it were easy, people would do more of it, and the Bible wouldn't tell us to do it if it was something that came naturally. But the Proverbs 31 man has got one little sentence in this whole thing, and it is a sentence of praise for her. That's the only thing he says, and that's vital. It's extremely important. And one of the things to understand, men, is that the work of a Proverbs 31 woman is not trivial. One of the things that our society has screwed up in badly is they have convinced men and women that unless a woman is holding down a nine-to-five job in the workplace away from the home, she is somehow trivial, lazy, not fulfilled, wasting her potential. Pick your adjectives. Now, there's two things driving this. Thing one is the desire of men and women for more toys. Having two people working brings in more toys. You can have a bigger house, you can have more cars, you can have more video games, you can have more weight sets, you know, whatever it is that you like, you can have more of it, both of you work outside the home. True statement. The second thing that's driving it is feminism. And the thing that drives feminism is it started after World War II when you had a cohort of very high-powered women that didn't have anybody to marry because so many men of the age that they should have married were killed. So you had a, a large cohort of women who were very high-powered, very intelligent, and they had nobody to marry. So the thinking went, well, if I can't get married, it must not be very important. A woman needs a husband like a fish needs a bicycle. Everybody heard that? That's a reaction to some very intelligent women that had nobody to marry. And since they couldn't get married, what they wound up doing is tearing the institution down. They were aided by men who wanted more toys. And the dynamic was that work inside the home was denigrated. I will submit to you that the highest and best use of a woman is educating and teaching the next generation. That is the highest and best use of a woman, to raise, teach, civilize, whatever word you want to use, the next generation. Anybody that tries to convince women that that isn't the most important thing that they can do is selling something. And this Proverbs 31 is an economic woman. She's making buying and selling decisions. She is running a small household factory. She's got servants. They're doing weaving and stuff like that. She's selling that in the marketplace. She is not an economic dead end. She is an active economic unit as part of that family, and she increases the wealth of the family. But it is within the context of the family. And her children rise up and call her blessed. Well, who do you suppose taught him to do that? Dad did. So again, 
it is not the case that this Proverbs 31 woman is huddled by the fireside barefoot with rags and no, not at all. She's out in the marketplace. She's active. She's doing stuff. She's buying and selling. She's making major economic decisions for the family. But it all revolves around an orderly household, which she runs. And I will guarantee you in a Proverbs 31 family, they have not farmed out the children to a daycare center. All right, let's look at this guy as a father. Biblically, a father does seven things. He provides adequately for his family. He leads the family. He teaches his children biblical values. He disciplines his children. He defends and protects the family. He prepares the children for productive work, and he helps to find his children a spouse. So if you look at the things that a biblical father typically does, those are they. All right, so let's go back to providing adequately for his family. We talked about this a little bit in that his wife is able to laugh at things to come. She feels confident that he is going to be there. The checkbook may be empty, but if it is, he's out there scratching to make it work. And everybody falls on economic hard times. The question is, is he going to be out there continuing to do what's necessary to provide for his family, or is he going to just say, eh, and go off and drink up the paycheck, such as it is? The Proverbs 31 man obviously doesn't. He owns property. And his wife, in some sense, manages some of it at least. Not necessarily all of it, but she manages some of it, but he's a property owner. His wife can travel and trade. So again, he is providing her with the wherewithal to do that. And we talked about he doesn't work to become rich. Uh, he works so that he has something to give. Leading the families. One of the biggest things that a man can do in leading his family is to provide an example to his children of loving his wife. Children, when they see their parents hug, when they see their father treat his wife respectfully and lovingly, they learn this is how you treat a wife. This is how we treat our mother. One of the things that Kay and I do, I mean, just because we like it, but even if we didn't, we do it in front of the children. I hug her, standing in the kitchen where the kids can see me. And what I'm doing is I'm showing them what I value. Now, how different families do it is different. I'm not suggesting you have to do it the way we do it, but it's important that the husband show the children that he loves and values his wife. That's very important. And that's part of leadership of the family. He also insists that the children bless their mother. And believe me, blessing your mother doesn't come naturally being a smart mouth comes more naturally. Obviously, this Proverbs 31 husband doesn't tolerate that. Again, with respect to leadership of the family, there's an article I received a long time ago. It's called Leadership That Frees. And there's a number of different kinds of leadership. Unfortunately, one of the models that lots of people learn is the tyrannical model. I'm going to say jump. Then you can ask me how high on the way up. I talk, you listen. Sort of the autocratic or tyrannical model. Generally speaking, that doesn't work very well. It doesn't work very well in organizations, and it certainly doesn't work very well in families. So one of the things that men need to figure out if they're going to be biblical leaders of their families is how to lead in a way that frees the members of their family to love each other, to act independently, to get results that he wants without him standing over them. That's not easy. That takes 
thought, discipline, and training. That's not something that comes naturally. And if you can find somebody that knows how to do it, learn from him. Because it's a very good trait. It's sort of like going back to the heart of her. His husband safely trusts her. Trust implies that she has freedom of action. She is free to do things. She is free to make decisions, and she can make them without being afraid that some jerk is going to be in her back pocket standing on her if she doesn't do just exactly what he expects. And that's something that's learned. I would suggest that it's an important thing for men to learn. Find somebody who knows how to do that and copy him. Teaching his children, Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So the first thing it says is whose responsibility here is it to teach the children about God? Dads. It is not acceptable to bundle the wife and kids up and send them off to Sunday school while you sleep in. Or Saturday school, or, you know, this is a Saturday-keeping church. I'm sort of used to hearing this in a Sunday context. It's not acceptable. God says so. He expects you to teach them, men. And the other one is, you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. What are we talking about there? The government. The gates are where government business was executed in biblical times. Remember our Proverbs 31 man is an elder who sits in the gates. A gate is where court was held. So when it says that you're to write these things on your doorpost and in your gates, it is saying specifically you are supposed to have these in government places. And up until the Supreme Court ran amok, we did. But that is a biblical command. The, the principles of the Torah are to be written on your gates. The basis of all of our civil and criminal law was originally the Torah. So there wasn't any conflict between the Ten Commandments and the civil laws of the country. Now, as that drifts farther and farther away, the Ten Commandments becomes an embarrassment to people who are passing bad laws. But again, the Torah specifically says where you're supposed to write these. He disciplines his children. Lots of examples in that in the Bible. Proverbs 19.18 is as good a place as any. Chasten your son while there is hope, and do not set your heart on his destruction. Which is to say, if you don't chasten your son, you have set your heart on his destruction. It is the father's responsibility to discipline the children. Now, that isn't to say that a mother can't take a young child and give him a swift swat across the diapers. It happens all the time. But the ultimate responsibility still lies with the father. Defends and protects the family. Again, lots of biblical examples there. Preparing children for productive work to ensure that they learn a trade so that when they finally do leave the house and get out on their own, they can earn a living and they don't bounce back. And one of the phenomena in our country today is you have perfectly healthy 20 through 35-year-old young men who live at home with their parents. That's nonsense. That's a failure of parenting. The idea is to get them up to the point where they're self-sufficient and launch them. And we'll see you on Passover and Yom Kippur and, and so forth, but I expect you to set up your own house and earn a living and start your own family. And again, the father is typically heavily involved in the choice of a spouse. Now, finally, let's look at him as an elder. The first thing that 
you can say about an elder is that he is respected in the community. That goes by definition. The elders do not get there simply by virtue of long service. They get there by virtue of being stable, respectable men who can be counted upon. And one of the characteristics of biblical society is it is governed by married men, not single men, not typically women. There are occasional female judges, Deborah, for example. There are occasional queens, but by and large, governance is by married men. That's the way we govern this church, is by married men. And the reason for that is married men have got something to lose. So married men tend to be cautious, stable, tend to talk things over, tend to have experience dealing with people. If you have a family and are successful at it, you have got to have learned how to deal with people. And they tend to be men of substance and property, which is to say they are successful in business. In Israel, the high priest had to be married. And it is my understanding that if the high priest at Yom Kippur, as he was getting ready to go into the Holy of Holies, received word that his wife died, he was disqualified. He didn't go in because he was no longer married. So an elder is a married man, and if you read Timothy and Titus, where Paul lays out the qualification of a church leader, they're all married men. This guy's not a fool. That's important. He's not a fool, because you have a lot of what I would call 50-year-old children. Bill Clinton was one of them. I'm sorry to say it, but the man is a fool, and you can tell that. This Proverbs 31 man is not a fool. He's got wisdom and integrity, takes care of business. Now here's an important one. One of the things that his wife is able to do is safely travel to shop far distances. She's like the merchant ship. She brings her food from afar. So she is able to travel and she is able to do so safely. Well, who do you suppose has set things up so that that's the case? The elders. It's the job of the elders to suppress lawless men. The most dangerous thing to a woman is a lawless man. As we said last time, a woman on her own is a target. And there are plenty of lawless men who will take advantage of her. And it's the job of the elders to keep that nonsense under control and suppressed. So he sees that the laws are enforced. And because he sees that the laws are enforced, there is peace in the country and his wife is able to travel without being afraid. It doesn't say anywhere in here she travels with an armed escort. She's able to travel freely, and that's because he takes his job as an elder seriously, and he enforces the laws. And finally, he acts beyond his church and family. Society deteriorates to the extent that good people withdraw. Society deteriorates to the extent that good men withdraw. And to the extent that good men and virtue have been run out of the public square, there is no vacuum. Nature abhors a vacuum. It will be filled with charlatans, fools, and blackguards. So, again, he takes his responsibilities in the community seriously. Say he votes. He writes letters to the editor. He serves on boards and commissions. He sits in the gates, and that's part of being an elder. I guess the last thing that I would say is the church in the United States isn't doing much better on marriage than the society at large is. We as a church are not much more successful than the rest of society is, and that's wrong. They did a survey of husbands and wives 
after some number of years of marriage, one of the questions they asked is, if you had it to do over again, would you marry this person? And an astoundingly high number said, no, I wouldn't marry that person again. I will suggest that it is a characteristic of the Proverbs 31 man that the Proverbs 31 woman would answer yes to that question. Given the opportunity to do it all over again, I would marry that guy in a heart. I'm suggesting that if you list all of these things that he has to do, first off, he is just as rare as the Proverbs 31 woman is. There are very few men that do all of this well, just as there are very few Proverbs 31 women. But it's something for both of us to shoot at. We've often put up the list in Proverbs 31 for girls to shoot at, but I will suggest that that also provides a list for boys to shoot at. I would just say, in conclusion, this is so empowering. Once you go through it, rather than having it be a laundry list, while it's important to have goals to shoot at, taken as a whole, to me, this is probably one of the best teachings I've come across in a long time. And although Ray is not here, when he read this, he was very enthusiastic about what it spoke, because in, in a very positive way, it's able to counteract what the world is beating on us 24 hours a day. And that's why I think it's so important to take the time, and I think you did a great job. Before we close here, I do need to give credit to the guy that wrote this. I meant to do it up front, and I didn't, so I will do it now. His name is Curtis Dolan, and that's K-U-R-T-I-S-D-A-H-L-I-N. Uh, the title of it is The Proverbs 31 Man. And if you type in uh, Proverbs 31 and, and D-A-H-L-I-N into a search engine, you can find this on the Internet if you want to read it for yourself. So I, I did want to give credit to him because he, he did a superb job. Where we're going next, we've talked about communication. We've talked about the responsibilities of men in marriage. What we're going to talk about next week is pathology. There are things that go wrong. And of course, ultimately, as mature men and women, we are responsible for the things that go wrong. But there are spiritual forces that give us a major hand in screwing ourselves up. And so what we're going to talk about next week is some of the common spiritual pathologies that happen in marriages. And with that, would someone like to close in prayer?